0: Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, philosophers, researchers and theorists discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Building at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. We hope you enjoy the program. Today we're here with, um, with Patrick Jackson, uh, who's a um, Associate Dean and Professor of IR at the School of International Service in American University. I think I've got that right. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he's probably best known uh, over this side of the Atlantic in, in some ways for his book, uh, The Conduct of Inquiry and International Relations on, on, on the Philosophy of Science. Um, in some ways, um, and, and the podcast still being young, I mean, one of the things that we uh, kind of coalesced around. Um, in in talking about how we designed this podcast was was going to conferences like BISA in in London and going to the pop culture uh, panels there and uh, and 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 kind of thinking well i mean you know is is, is it more than this what, what what are we talking about when we're talking about science fiction and IR and, and and social science more generally and and i think i mean in some ways unknowingly you played a role in this uh, um, at BISA in Ireland uh, last year when you know panel and 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 this immaculately dressed American professor stands up and, 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 and begins a question with a statement. It's a bit like Battlestar Galactica, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, um, and, 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 well, I mean, there's been the book on that and, and, and various other things. We now know Harry Potter and international relations and, and all of those kind of things, but um, having spoken to you the last couple of days and, and, and everything else, I mean, it seems like one of the things you're, you're really focused on um, when it comes to how you think about these things is, is, is the role it plays in, in your teaching. Mm-hmm. Um I mean can you can you just talk a little bit about that and 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 say I mean what what is it we're doing when we when we using these uh, popular culture and, and science fiction to teach
1: Yeah yeah I mean, it's a, it's a, it, it, it's true I mean with well no I was a sci-fi geek before I was an academic um, and so sort of started there and, and in some ways the the first uh, syllabus that I ever wrote was actually when I was about 12 and it occurred to me that it would be really fun to teach a class using, uh, or, or reading, instead of reading the stuff we were reading in school, to actually read something that was interesting. And uh, the particular text I was interested in at the time was Watchmen. Okay. Um, and that was when the graphic novel was just sort of, just, just beginning to appear, I was like 12 or 14 or something like that, so it was, it was around that time. Um, and I always thought that would be would be a really interesting text to, to sort of talk about, because we were... We were doing, in some of my you know, civic social studies, contemporary history kinds of classes, people were talking about the, the Cold War and so on. And I said in Vietnam, and I said, well, actually, you know, the, this graphic novel does that better and yeah, talks about that in a more no, interesting absolutely. kind of way. Um, most of my teachers at the time, you know, oh, that's just Patrick, whatever. Um, so, but I always thought that, that there is a way that, that Watchmen in particular was the sort of text that captured something really important about about politics, about international politics, about social life, and did so by being able to depict these stories of these very human superheroes and these problems of monitoring and and information sharing and and, uh, who controls authority and so on and so forth. the other piece that always kind of grabbed me was this short story or a novella, actually, by Robert Heinlein. Uh, it was called If This Goes On. And If This Goes On is a story set in a fictionalized America where a person has been elected to the presidency, who promptly dissolved the federal government and proclaimed the first holy empire, um, and his name was Nehemiah Scudder, and thought he was a prophet of God, and uh, the world is, the you United know, States at least, is a kind of religious dictatorship, and the, the, the uh, military have been turned into angels and cherubim, and there's a whole sort of angelic hierarchy stuff, and it's all about a, a revolt that, that happens in this religious dictatorship. Now, what I always found fascinating about this is, yes, this is a work of fiction. On the other hand, it was one of the more accurate commentaries on the state of the United States right. that I'd read. Um, and so I read this and said, oh, look, this is interesting. Somehow this author has captured something, even though no facts in this story are true. Yeah. But there's still something very true about this story. That he captured something about the the barely suppressed beating heart of the United States actually teetering very close to some kind of religious dictatorship. Yep. Um, and then frankly when George W. Bush was elected, um, I said, oh well, I guess Heinlein was right after all. Uh, because you ended up with all of this sort of this apocalyptic religious rhetoric starting to starting to come out all over the place. You see it all after 9-11 and all the It's not like this stuff hadn't been there in American politics before, but it took a while for a lot of the professional social scientists to notice it in, in ways that I think that, that Heinlein, as a short story writer and as a novelist, was able to notice it a lot earlier. And then it's not just sci-fi. There's other novelists and other, other sort of filmmakers and other, other folks who have been able to notice these things about, about the United States. And that sort of started me thinking, okay, if we really want to explore this stuff, then we should be taking these works of quote-unquote fiction – as seriously as we take our works of quote-unquote theory yeah. um, and what is the difference between a fictional or science fictional exploration of certain kinds of dilemmas in politics and religion and authority and reading some sophisticated theorist about these things and it, the more I kind of thought about that the more that distinction kind of stopped making a lot of sense to me um, especially since the science fiction authors were a lot more fun to read so they have the ability to actually spin a narrative that, that kind of works this led eventually to the class the the, the science fiction and, and and more politics class which when i had my job interview at american you know they asked the the, the question about like what classes would you like to teach and so i you know stammer out the basic oh i really love introductory classes and da 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 you know, and everybody's like, yeah, okay, fine, standard answer. Um, and then I said, but what I really want to teach is a science fiction class. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden, everybody starts talking at once, and it's like, wait, what would you teach? How would you do it? da 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 Everybody was really engaged. Um, and after I'd been teaching at AU for a couple of years, then I proposed the class, and I couldn't get it approved by the department, um, so I proposed it as an honors seminar, so it only have to go through the honors bureaucracy, which is fine. Right. Like Thinner, and they thought it was awesome, and that they, they would really, you know, students would enroll, and it would be great. And then it went up, and the then provost nixed it and said, "I couldn't teach it." And I said, "Why?" She said, "Well, because you have, don't have tenure, and we don't want something in your teaching record that looks that looks frivolous. So you yep. shouldn't teach this." And I said, "Oh, okay." So I changed the title of the course and changed the title from what my original title was, which was social slash science slash fiction. Um, and changed the title to Envisioning the Future of World Politics <laughs> and sent the exact same course back up the chain and it was approved and I taught it and the first thing I did in the first day when I walked into the room was to tell the students so the official title of this class is this but the real title of the class is Social Science Fiction I taught it twice as Envisioning the Future of World Politics then I got tenure and promptly taught it as Social Science Fiction thereafter I've taught it maybe five or six times um, the syllabus changes a little bit every time but the the whole thing that i want to do in the class is not simply use novels and films as illustrations of theoretical principles which i think is one thing that people often do with the teaching using a pop culture um, instead what i want is i want students to really start thinking about these things as theory as analytical statements so here is uh, something that's going on on Star Trek and that's not just an illustration of realism. It is a particular commentary on politics that happens to have some family resemblance to what we think of as realist IR theory. Yeah. So, But it's not But the, the, the sort of learning outcome is not that the students will understand realism better. The learning outcome is they may understand politics better.
0: So, yeah, yeah. I mean it, it's an interesting thing. I, Matt and I talk about this a lot when we're talking about what we want the podcast to be and, and You know how to think about that and we're still working through that in some sense Um, I mean I'm I'm similar in some ways I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons you know you kind of go through all these things you watch Star Trek after school Um, and in some regards there's a very real way in which that's part of the reason why I'm here doing what I'm doing right I mean it's a motivating force but then in some ways when you look back on it it's something slightly different right I mean, you you kind of retrospectively alter, I, I think, in some ways. Or you, or you can, and, and, and or refine how you saw it. Because right. when you're a kid, stuff blew up. Wow, you know, that's really cool. Um, you know, we need to reverse the polarity of for what's in the jigger. You know, hand-wavy sci-fi, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple of years ago, uh, we, there was a few of us all at the same time watching Babylon 5. I mean, it was the first time I'd seen it. Okay. Um, now... There's a lot there. I mean, we're not going to discuss the specifics of Babylon Five, but I remember. I mean, just just one thing that the progression in the introduction to the series, as you go through, yeah, where it says our last best hope for peace, and then a couple of seasons later, our last best hope for victory, and then yeah. the last season, our last best hope for survival. Yeah. Now this sent ripples through the PhD community. <laughs> we had one guy declaring it the perfect example of the tragedy of world politics. We had one of my best friends, Andre, claiming it was Hegel on TV. Um, <laughs> you know, it, you know and, and, and kind of going through it that way. But, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it kind of leads to an interesting problem because you see some of these. I mean, I'm always interested to go to these panels, mm-hmm. um, and it'll be on pop culture. Um, although, interestingly, when it's on, uh, if there's ever a um, panel on pop culture and security, It'll always be science fiction. <laughs> um, it seems to be, and 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 whether that's video games, you know, well, you know, which are tied into the military-industrial complex anyway, you know, what is it we're doing? I mean, you said that you want to get past that as an example, right? Um, which I mean, there's numerous, you know, I, and and I know BSG was very explicitly going for a particular line when they did this, right? Um, right. I mean, I mean is it, is it just a way of Culturally rendering what you're trying to talk about,
1: right? I, I I think that it it is and it isn't. It's more than that as well. I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly no you know big objective problem with saying here is a video game or here is a film which is a perfect depiction of a certain kind of theoretical principle, um, you know starship troopers right and you look
0: at this and go right, okay right, so that's yeah. a
1: that's a very a very a very uh, sort of silly but, but deliberately so example of what happens when faced with certain kinds of threats and the glorification the fascistic glorification of the military and just to make sure you don't miss the point that he has people come in in Nazi uniforms you know it's like hello <laughs> hello <laughs> yeah um, it's hitting you over the head exactly, that point, exactly. Yeah. But, but this is what Verhoeven was trying to do right The whole, it's, it's supposed to be a satire yeah, yeah. Um, but though the funny thing about that film you go back and watch it now is how much he nails what news looks like. Because oh, go no, back absolutely. and look at his depictions yeah. of Federation news, and you compare it to CNN and Fox, and it's like that's what they're doing. Yeah, <sighs> no, absolutely, absolutely, brilliant, brilliant foresight. Um, so I do think that there, there's certainly we can certainly use these things as examples, um, and and uh, you know, eh. so we can and, and we and we and we do right, and and that's certainly one kind of narrow use of it. Um, and then there's the the use that like my friend Charlie Carpenter is, is very fond of which is the let's talk about the way that pop cultural artifacts have have sort of causal impacts on people's attitudes uh, yeah, and, you know so that does playing first-person shooter games make you more sympathetic to gun rights or whatever so there, there's that kind of like use of it as well it's yeah, like, so yeah. pop culture as, as causal object and then pop culture as illustration and what'm I'm, what I'm really trying to get at is something something else Um what, what what I guess I would sort of I flip the question a little bit like what are we doing when we debate you know what kind of politics is being depicted in the sequence in B five, um, and I think what we're doing there is in, not fundamentally different from the question what kind of politics is being depicted in schmidt or what kind of politics being depicted right, right. in habermas reading these things as primary source texts as themselves kind of theoretical commentaries um so step one is we have to extract what's actually being said within here we gotta have a compelling reading of what's actually being being sort of said in the text um, and then like any other voice in a, in a set of theoretical dialogues it's not it's not realism, liberalism, and Ballastar Galactica somewhere is mediated in between. It's realism, liberalism, Ballastar Galactica. These are sort of all on the same plane. You know? Okay, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the, what Dan Nexon and I once called the political economy production of production of the serialized sci-fi uh, tends to give you, tends to give you something that you don't often have to worry about in theoretical or social scientific interventions, which is uh, Continuity, because <laughs> yeah. you know continuity problems are huge. I Star Trek, right? It's famous for these sorts of big howlers, like you know, Khan never actually met Chekhov in the first episode. So what's going on in the beginning of Star Trek yeah, Two? Yeah, yeah. Um, but but the point is that like that that continuity matters. That kind of that that, that, that internal universe continuity stuff is, is really significant. And that, that that that's different than what we do. Right? We we're much more episodic. We're much more much more kind of, one-off interventionist in terms of the kinds of the kinds of statements that we produce. Um, but the power of in universe continuity is it allows you to really flesh out you know, what are the implications of a certain kind of a certain set of assumptions, what is what is the logic of a certain way of, of looking at things. So you know, arguing the Battlestar Galactica piece that that's not too dissimilar from what happens when one is engaged in a process of ideal typification, of conceptual clarification of what the logical implications of certain positions are. And again, depicting it, running it out in, in that sort of way, I think is the, the the kind of internal logical engine that makes a good sci-fi novel work. It it has to hang together. And it's so important that a good piece of sci-fi has to hang together. Because unlike a piece of historical fiction or contemporary fiction, it can't make references to all of these things in our everyday life as a way of shoring itself out. Yeah. So step one is this is a lie (laughs) because something happens (laughs) in the first five minutes or on the first page that just tells you that that we're in a totally different kind of space. So, I mean, the the great example that I think is Darko Suvin is that great example of the uh, the Novum, the idea of the doors in Star Trek, which in the 1960s when they had auto doors, then it's like, oh, well, we are clearly not in Kansas anymore. Something is is weird. Um, You know, or, or, oh, look, suddenly they went faster than light. Okay, that's, Clearly, we're talking about a different kind of physics here. Something, something else is happening. Put you in a weird kind of state where you can no longer just rely on things the same way. Star Trek, especially in Deep Space Nine, they get really clever about this because then they make Ben Sisko obsessed with old baseball. So then, yeah. So that that shows up, but it's like it's something something you can you can hang it on. But um, but uh, it, it's not you don't have the same ability to just refer to things that we all think of as true. So the internal logic of it becomes really significant, which is then why you can have fan communities debating whether or not certain kinds of implications of the future fictitious tech actually work out the way they're yeah, supposed to. I mean, we absolutely
0: ended up... I mean, we, we, we kind of have, across the books we've debated so far, you know, we've had these... I mean, the, the last one on Brave New World was, was very much a debate about whether Huxley was a fascist or not. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, he trod he that line and, you know, whatever, but, I mean, you know, we have one guy saying, well... You know, this is historically the case. He was kind right. of hanging around with canes or whatever, you know, they're all a bit, yeah, eugenics and all of that kind of thing. And then, you know, uh, Ursula Le Guin, yeah. you know, who's the daughter of anthropologists laying out this yeah. incredibly <laughs> elaborate system of reproduction. Yeah. And, and and there seems to be a couple of ways in which it's negotiated. I mean, one is you use that kind of thing to wave things away. Mm-hmm. Right. which is what Huxley does. Right. You know, you, yeah, the Bocanowski process, you know, people reproducing jars, you know, it's yeah. all good, right? right. You know, we can talk about the principle of mass production now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the other way it's done is, 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 is to try and pare down what is actually being right. talked about. Um, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, you get these kind of reality effects, right? I mean, this is the, the thing with the monologue at the end of Blade Runner, you know, um, you know, I've seen this and that, right? I mean, they kind of give you fleeting glimpses of a right. world that you you don't quite know, and so we can actually get back to the work that it's trying to do. And
1: in some ways, though, I think that that's very similar intellectually to the thing that we do in a lot of our articles, when we say, "Okay, mm-hmm. we know there's a lot of other stuff going on out there in the world. We're just okay. going to set it aside for a second, right? And now we're going to focus on this thing. So we're going to follow this thread and kind of see how this goes." Um, you know, the, the, in many ways, uh, the, the, the distinction between the stylized facts that we use to illustrate our points in an article or even in a book, of how different is that? Sort of fundamentally from what's going on when somebody invents a world, does, does some serious world building, and then comes up with a plot line that snakes its way through it. Um, I don't know, so I was a D&D player myself, but I always I always actually found that the world building part more interesting than the actual play of the game. Well, I so mean, in interestingly, of the world. You know. Right, and, and, and
0: interestingly, you have this whole movement. I mean, this is kind of besides the point in some sense, but I mean, you have this whole movement now towards narratively driven. Rather than here's some kind of rigid rule set, which is right. which is your system, right? Exactly. You know, you have a particular kind of dice, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know all of this kind of thing. Um, but the point the point is that,
1: that that filling in the richness of the world and making it compelling, I think, is not entirely different across different sorts of writing genres. Um, it's, it's, and I would then argue that what happens when you're trying to do that kind of thing in a sci-fi world is more similar to what we do in the social sciences than when mm-hmm. you're doing, say, a fantasy world. Right, right. And that's in part because in a fantasy world, you can always just kind of drop magic into it, and then something shows up that doesn't have a naturalistic explanation, and it's perfectly okay. You can yes. have, you know, suddenly gods, and boom. The other, but the other issue about it is a fantasy world, almost by definition has a moral cosmology that's hardwired into the very fabric of the thing and so you know, it's like there's no point in having a debate about like whether Boromir should have taken the ring right, because right. it's evil okay end of story <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's really no strategic debate about whether they should cut deals with Sauron no, he's evil. That's that's pretty much it. And and so whenever anybody cuts deals with Sauron, that's that's part of a tragedy. And and you know it's coming, and you sort of watch it happening. This is and this is this is the case in Star Wars too, which is why Star Wars is not yeah really no, sci-fi, absolutely. right. Yeah. I mean, because it's like no, he's evil. That's it. He's just bad. And yes, it's a redemption story about Anakin. So Anakin has a fall and redemption arc, but. I mean Palpatine seriously no this guy's just evil and that's all there is to it um, and the force has a dark side the force has a light side and that's all there is it'll be interesting to see whether the seventh film actually complicates this at all some of the extended universe novels have complicated this but they've mixed those but now those are gone as <laughs> not part of continuity anymore so whatever um, I'm still going to write a paper one day about the use and Vong series that comes after uh, set several years after Return of the Jedi um, because one of the things they need, it's the closest that comes to like turning Star Wars into an actual piece of science fiction and the way they do it is by having an alien species invade from outside the galaxy and the trick about the alien species is they're force neutral they do not show up right. they, are not, they are neither dark nor light and it's like oh Wow. Okay. Suddenly, you've actually got moral ambiguity because now we don't. There's no. There's no hardwired code of like good and bad. And this is why I think that what we're doing, social science, particularly we're doing international affairs, and and what happens when in in science fiction have a kind of deep structural parallel or or profound family resemblance, or however one wants to express that. Because in order to have politics, in order to have especially global politics, international politics we can't start with a pre-given moral cosmology because if we do, the only thing we can do is criticize actions or evaluate them. Yeah. And, but if we're actually trying to analyze them and trying to figure out why they happened, okay, now we're suddenly in a much more morally gray universe in which there's actual political involvement of people doing things and organizing themselves and so on. And that's the situation that I think most of us in our disenchanted world, that's where we find ourselves is right there so it's not a surprise to me that these panels, especially when they start talking about security stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that because security in a fantasy world is totally different. Right, right. Right? Security in a sci-fi world actually poses political questions. Are they a threat? Are they the other? Are they someone we can recognize? Are they like us? Are they not like us? You get that fundamental politics of recognition thing that's like so crucial to, to how politics works. This is the this is the problem of alien life, right? This is when I teach the class. The politics of alien life is the thread that runs through a lot of the films and novels. So I will have people read Sherry S. Tepper's Grass, um, which is a a marvelous novel about completely misunderstanding alien life. Um, And it's one of those novels where you can give away the punchline without giving away the book, because the punchline of Grass is, and then she ran off with the alien instead of her husband. And but how they get there is
0: just so brilliant yeah I, I think like I mean with that classic kind of deus ex machina you know coming from outside mechanism is endemic to sci-fi right I mean I, I think do you know an author called Mm-hmm. Um but he did a novel called uh, Embassy Town brilliant um, you know and, and again that's something you can give away the end but you have yeah so rich. You know, you have this whole theological right. story of the fall. Yeah. You have yeah. <laughs> deep statements on, on the nature of language. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, mean right. and I, I think in some ways, you know, that, that kind of weird, if you like, yeah. um, way that he's gone with it is a reassessment of fantasy. Um, because it's a, it's a reassessment of fantasy in light of things that we now know yeah. about the past. Sovereignty, you know, countries didn't exist then. Right. Right? And, 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 and things like that. The
1: problem is with, with, with Meville is, at least in, for, for me... Embassy Town is the only one of his novels I can actually stand. Um, I, I the, 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 gothic grotesque, just right, right, doesn't, it just doesn't. The fluid doesn't do much for you No, I mean that, that just kind of, I, I find that, I find that just a little. It's a little off putting. But the really thing that bothers me is then when it suddenly goes all, you know, inverse Ayn Randian and then we get twenty pages about how the workers are being oppressed by the capitalists. It's right, like, right, great, I'm sure they are, but do we I mean it was boring when Ayn Rand had John Gall go on about it for a hundred pages from the opposite point of view. I, this really doesn't help your story so can we just move on please yeah, I, th- I think Council um, counsel <laughs> and that kind of thing right right. <laughs> well, I, I, I think okay. that
0: story element is interesting one of the things that's kind of come up repeatedly as we've done discussions on the books and it actually came out right at the beginning when we did Neuromancer in the first episode yeah. you have the first line the sky the color of television yeah. change your dead channel boom you don't have to write the rest of the novel yeah, right. The, the plot is to the detriment right. <laughs> of the rest of the novel, and, and and that's right. It had a plot, didn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, exactly. It was like guy walks around and yeah. sees interesting things. I yeah, mean, yeah. And, and and I think yeah. it's quite sad because I, I think novels, if you like, as a kind of form, of, have right. kind of moved beyond that. I mean, you have people right. writing stuff. Uh, who's the guy that wrote Invisible Cities and If on a Winter's Night a Traveler? Oh, um, yeah Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. A, a novel that is just a description of a city. Yeah. I said, I'm cool with that. Yeah. Like, like he's just yeah. creating an entire world. Dude. Oh yeah. yeah. Though I think Gibson figured out
1: how to do it better in some of his later novels. When you get to Virtual right. Light, and it's like, okay, now, or even even when he when he abandons like all of the signifiers of sci-fi and starts writing things like Zero History, mm-hmm. where it's okay, it's not really sci-fi. It's sort of like just contemporary fiction with some very slight, almost sci-fi type five year out technology elements in it right the whole plot of of, of zero history and and uh, what's the first one zero history is the second one there's a first one that sort of comes before it um, but the whole plot of it involves uh, uh virtual art right. and, and geolocated right. virtual art where people are putting on goggles and sort of you know, looking at these, ge- these these virtual installations that have been created in the city streets and then there's a whole thing about global shipping that gets involved, and and, and it's fascinating because it's one of the novels that's completely inconclusive, and something kind of happens, and it was sort of important, but you have no idea what it was. Yeah. Here, here's the shipping container, and then it came in, and then it went back out again, and I guess that was important because that took us a long time. But but it's it, but it's really not. It's really just about what does the landscape look like now. Um, but Gibson has figured out how to do it better, I think, than mm-hmm. he was able to do it in Neuromancer. Um, he's been pursued to just. Just as a technical thing, it's like improved as a writer as he's gotten as he's gotten further on. Um, and again, it's great. There's something you can. T- I think there's there's something. I maintain this until till the end. There's something you can tell in a narrative that cannot be captured when you take that narrative and translate it into something else. Right. There's something you learn from a good story mm-hmm. that isn't just. A particular fact that was embedded in the story or a particular summary of the story. There's something about the telling of and the hearing of, the reading of the narrative itself, that there, there, there's a kind of knowing there. Um, I remember when, when I was in undergrad, I remember having a long argument with a professor uh, about we were supposed to be reading novels about the quote-unquote third world. Um, and Wanted really literary things, right? And so I said, okay, fine. So I'm going to read Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And he said, okay, well then you should read this and this. And I said, no, I'm going to read The General in His Labyrinth because that's the one that sort of is a novel about politics. Okay. He said, no, no, you should read Love in Time of Cholera because it's all this. And no, no, I'm reading The General in His Labyrinth. Yeah, okay. And then I treated The General in His Labyrinth exactly on par with some of the theorists of third world politics that we had been reading. I said, like, well, Marquez knows that they don't is that the, the dream of one big country still informs a lot of the political dynamics. And you can't demonstrate that in any sort of like causal, efficacious sense, but there's, there's something about the whole life world that, that, that Marquez is able to depict in that. Um, and uh, he thought I was kind of crazy, but let me do it.
0: Well, I mean, so. you know, like Marquez in some ways is, is, is the guy that... Got me into studying politics, or yeah. um, well, One Hundred Years of Solitude. Um, yeah. I mean, the the first sentence containing all three tenses mm-hmm. is, is just. I mean, again, that, that's what the book's about, right? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. And I, I've never felt so brilliantly unstable when I was reading a novel. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good one. That's a really good one.
1: But no, but but I think there's something there's something about that, and we we lose that because we we have these writing genres when we write articles straight social science, that we invest with all of this epistemic importance. Like it has to sound like an I/O article in order for it to be right. something that approximates truth. Um, and I just think that that's, I mean that's bullshit. There, there are lots of other ways of knowing, and that is the whole punchline of the, the stuff I've been doing lately. Um, there are lots of other di- other ways of knowing, and in particular lots of other ways of knowing about this thing that we call international affairs. And if we really want to take that seriously, then we need to be exposed to this. So, to so wind this back to the teaching? When I teach, and the sequence that I go through, these different views of of alienness and what it means to encounter aliens. And so, we'll watch Blade Runner, and then the question is like, is that really a film about aliens? Discuss. And ah, what does it mean to be an alien? And how far yeah. out does it have to go? Um, you know, and then we'll and we'll read Ender's Game. Not watch the absolutely atrocious but we read the novel and, uh, and then just to make sure that nobody misses the point we'll read Karl Schmitt's concept of the political right. and then we'll read uh, Speaker for the Dead and then we'll read Todorov's Conquest of America and it's like okay so let's sort of it, you oscillate back and forth between these things and sometimes students uh, will come to the end and say I, I'm confused I forget whether we're reading a novel or, or a piece of, of theory and I said, yeah exactly that's the point. It, it, you can't really tell anymore, um, which hopefully then expands for them the realm of what counts as a legitimate voice when it comes to thinking about or making contributions to, to, to uh, what, what, the, what the common future would be, um, which, sure, a lot of what we do when we're engaged in social scientific work is, is about explaining things, yes but a lot of the explanation that we give is also signaling some of these, or channeling some of these broader notions, these broader visions of what the future uh, should look like or could look like. So in a way, I always think of what we do when when we're doing a lot of of international studies writing is we're contributing to this common stock of possible plans, right? Right. What kinds of things might actually happen. And sometimes we're good at it because we manage to figure out how to do the microcosm, macrocosm thing. So I'm going to talk about something small and I'm going to explain this, but it's going to signal these bigger issues through it. It's the kind of thing Weber was a master at, right? It's that. I'm going to tell you this one little story about where capitalism comes from tell you the story about about protestant theology and how it sort of morphs into this at the same time what i'm telling you is i'm showing you this huge landscape about the way that human beings make meaning and debate with one another and how the world is invested with all of this stuff and how this happens in a way that isn't just about re-mythologizing things but it's about signifying them all of this stuff is is gathered up in there Um, and sometimes we do it really poorly like percent of what gets published in our top journals, right? <laughs> because it's not, we, we, we lose sight of the big. We lose sight of the fact that what we're doing is we're, we're telling this 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 m- major story through this particular configurational moment that we're using to, to open it up and illustrate what it is that we're doing. Um, and nowadays, with the way that a lot of, uh, a lot of academic production goes, it's, it's easy to lose that because that's the kind of thing that editors and reviewers will tell you to drop right away, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is why the, the invention of things like the Journal of Narrative Politics is such a great move because it, it's space for something like mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, it's why uh, I'm, I'm still waiting for still waiting for a big journal to realize that if you want to do something on like visual politics you actually have to fight with the publishers and you have to get them to print the picture <laughs> because you <laughs> need the freaking picture in order to make it work so I think that there, it, it, it's not jury, jury's still out, it's not quite decided that, this is, that, you know, that, that that everything is going to be closed down by this particular genre but I think that, that trying to push up against it and for me both in teaching and in research one of the most useful things to do is to continue to bring up these, these sci-fi voices um, and I'll just end with one last yeah. one. I mean, cause, he, Neil Stevenson could write a novel called The Phone Book, and I would read it because it right, would be right. awesome. Because um, the guy just, he, he does not, so he, he's figured out how to end the book finally. That's good. Um, he like, didn't know uh, that in Oh my God, no. <laughs> but, but like, with the Diamond Age, you know. Yeah. And what? And then they went in the ocean and what? <laughs> so, um, but Anthem. well, Anathen is one of the best explorations of what it means to be a university that I've ever read. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's this fantastic, fantastic depiction. Um, and he, he's just so good at being able to put these things together. And so uh, when I'm sometimes, when I'm wearing my associate dean hat, I'm at these educational conferences and be, well, what is the moral purpose of the university? And so I'm like, well, you know, have you read Anathem? Yeah. Because if you really want to deal with this question, then here is a source of, oh, well, no, we should be going back to, you know, cardinal newman and we should be reading all these sort of great philosophical, i mean yeah you should read that stuff that's important but there are other voices who speak in other dialects about these matters and sometimes do so in ways that are much more compelling and much more imaginative and i think we do ourselves a real disservice if we if we imagine that the only use of pop cultural artifacts this is a use but not the only use is to illustrate things we already know or to be dropped in as essentially independent variables in our regression equation, um, there are other things you can do with them. And I think things that are ultimately more more about the, the character or the vocation of what it is we do when we do social science. So, and I wish at some point in my life I could write something as compelling as either that Robert Hyland story or Watchmen where we started, because both of those are just, well actually that's just answered my last question which is have you considered writing a novel <laughs> well the closest I came the closest I've come so far is the piece that's going to be in the the Ken Booth and Tony Erskine edited book um, the, the, the IR theory today right, uh, yeah. where my piece which I think is going to, going to close the volume is they want me to write about the future of international relations theory and I said okay well the only way I can do that is by projecting myself and actually writing a story about it so, I wrote part of the, uh, the ISA presidential address for the 200th anniversary of the International yeah, Studies Association exactly. in 2157. And, uh, and I had a few excerpts from it because I didn't have that many words. I couldn't do the whole, the whole speech. Of course, in order to do this, me being me, something tells me you being an old D&D guy probably would have done the same thing. You have to world build first. So, you have to put yeah, together yeah. the whole thing. So, I have this whole sequence of how we got to a situation in which there had been a major agricultural collapse and certain countries were able to survive better because of communal norms that allowed them to weather the storm in ways the United States couldn't because the United States extreme individualism, so social structure didn't exist and things kind of fell apart and the university system of the U.S. collapses and then it gets sort of recolonized by European universities having mm-hmm. partnership arrangements with these things and so by lead character who is a, uh, who is a, a Kenyan his parents died in food riots, and then he ends up going to Oxford and then is at a small liberal arts school in the United States, which is affiliated with an Oxford College, essentially supported by the Oxford College, right, right. so it of goes back and forth. Um, and and of course part of the other part of the backstory is that the International Studies Association, which still exists at that point in time, um, has decided that there's that there's no point in rotating isa conventions and so all isa conventions henceforth are actually held in everest with and so they're all there it happened like every three years and he's he's the he's become the president and part of what he's done in his career is he's written about how these different social norms concatenated in different places to produce different kinds of outcomes when it came to the questions of the food riots um and then i have uh, and then I have the, the Catholic Church showing up and solving the food crisis problem by deploying these nanotech replicator machines that create basic foodstuffs, um, and, and, and there's a whole thing about, about them not using that to take over, because it doesn't become a bargaining tool, because mm-hmm. it becomes a sort of suppressor for service, Anyway, very little of that's actually in the story, because the story just has these two sort of excerpts from, from the right, speech. Right. Um, but I have this whole thing worked out. <laughs> <laughs> so at some point, I, I might like to try it just for the sake of trying it. My problem is that uh, I don't know that I'm a good enough writer, just mm-hmm. as a technical matter, to be able to pull it off. Right. I'm, a good, I'm, I'm pretty good at social science prose. I'm pretty good at like essayistic social science prose, which is more, more or less what I write these days. Um, but I've never actually written a full-on, Novel or story mm-hmm. like that, so I don't know how good I would be at it. And I feel like I would somehow need to be adequate to the story in order to actually write in for any sort of public consumption. <laughs> so maybe I'll give it a crack at some point in, well, my, in my career because you know I've got this world, I gotta do something
0: with it. Fantastic! Well, um, you gotta get a train, so uh, I do have to get a train, that is important. All right, well, Patrick Jackson, thanks very much. Hey, uh, thanks, and look forward to seeing you soon. Yes.